recording. Okay. So today's date is Sunday, July 18th, 2021. We are reading from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we're reading starting on page three with, in 1929, I contracted golf fever up to and including on page five, the paragraph that begins renewing my resolve, I tried again. I will read to, to the end of that paragraph. Um, Jeff H. will be our reader, followed by a 20-minute share by Dara L. Good morning, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be of service. In 1929, I contracted golf fever. We went at once to the country, my wife to applaud, while I started out to overtake Walter Hagen. Liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. I began to be jittery in the morning. Golf permitted uh, drinking every day and every night. Uh, it was fun to caroam around the exclusive course, which had inspired such awe in me as a lad. I acquired the impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well-to-do. The local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his till with amused skepticism. Abruptly, in October 1929, hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days of inferno, I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was eight o'clock, five hours after the market closed. The ticker still chattered, clattered. Uh, I was staring at an inch of tape which bore the inscription XYZ32. It had been 52 that morning. I was finished and so were many friends. The papers reported Ben jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. My friends had dropped several million since 10 o'clock. So what? Tomorrow was another day as I drank, the old fierce determination to win came back. Next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left and thought I had better go to Canada. By the following spring, we were living in our custom style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Elba. No St. Helena for me, but drinking caught up with me again, and my generous friend had to let me go. This time, we stayed broke. We went to live with my wife's parents. I found a job, then lost it as a result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. I became an unwelcome hanger-on at brokerage places. Liquor ceased to be a luxury, it became a necessity. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three, got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would uh, pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to wake at very early in the morning, shaking violently. A tumbler full of gin, followed by a half dozen bottles of beer, would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. Gradually, things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder 
My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at the low point of 1932 and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender and the chance vanished. I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. Uh, shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way and I had taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. Renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone in no time, I was beating on the bar, asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time. But I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. Um, the uh, remorse, Jeff, horror, Jeff, and hope. Jeff, that, yeah, is that the that's end? It. Yep, thank you. Okay, yeah, sorry. Perfect. <laughs> that's okay. Not that's Thank you so much, Jeff, for, for reading for us. Um, so now we have a 20-minute a share by Dara L. from Connecticut. Um, thank you so much, Dara, for, uh, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us today. And um, the floor is yours. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, God, goddess, goddess, spirit and light of light and love, whatever is up there and out there and in me, please allow me to speak the truth. Make my words a beacon of hope, love and light for someone listening that I may help the still suffering compulsive eater. Amen. Okay, so my name is Dara L. I'm a recovered anorexic bulimic and compulsive overeater um, in Philadelphia, originally from Connecticut. And, um, you know, so much came out for me in these pages. And I'll tell you that why I always start every share uh, introducing my conception of a higher power before I introduce my conception of myself, because without, without access to that higher power, I firmly believe I would be dead. Um, and I have a lot of evidence to back that belief up. You know, I was very much headed on a crash course for self-destruction. Um, and because this is not a qualification meeting, it's really, you know, um, identifying in with Bill's story. I'm going to do my best to do that and to sort of thread some of my experiences into um, Bill's experiences, because I certainly um, ate like Bill drank, I thought like Bill thought. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I suffer today from a spiritual soul sickness that um, is arrested, you know, one day, one day at a time. So um, what stood out to me in these three, you know, in these pages, which are just chock full of like great stuff, right, is, um, you know, just food for like, in my case, food, bulimia, starvation, all of the things that I did to myself, all of the ways that I was killing myself 
really stripped me of my aspirations, you know, and stripped me of my ability to be there for other people. Um, and, you know, sadly, people love me. Like I read this first paragraph on page, the bottom of page three. And I think about poor Lois, like what the heck, you know, she's following this guy around and he's just like, you know, in and out of the disease. And that was me. That was my story. I've been institutionalized 16 times. You know, I have done wreaked havoc on the people in my life, stolen from them, you know, and they still somehow, you know, stood around and, and loved me, loved me even as, you know, I made promises that I had no ability to live up to. And I heard this in Bill's story, right? That Bill's like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to get it. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be okay. Like this time is going to be different than every other time, you know? And somehow he, be he believed it, you know, and I believed it. I believed it every time I would go into a treatment center. I'd be like, this is the last time, you know, I'm going to be good. I'm going to get out and I'm going to like take on the world, you know, and I would for like a minute and a half. And then I'd be binging and purging. I remember one treatment center, I was walking out the door um, and I stole food. I stole food on the way out of this treatment center and was binging and purging on the way home. You know, like I just, I just couldn't stop because I suffer from an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind, you know, and I see this in Bill and the being jittery in the morning, you know, like I, I felt that I remember going to bed, I would binge and purge at night. And I would promise myself, you know, every night, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do it ever again. I'm done. I'm done. You know, I'd throw away all my binge food. I'd even take it outside to the garbage. You know, like I was done. I was done. I was done. And I'd wake up in the morning. I, 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 I would be shaking. I would need my sugar fix. Like I, I relate to that, to being jittery in the morning. Um, and, you know, this whole thing that like people... You know, when I, I picture Bill, you know, like looking great, you know, like he's showing up, he's got this tan, he's looking great. You know, as a bulimic, I often, I often showed up looking different in the world than, than what I was doing behind closed doors, you know, and then how I was feeling on the inside, like wanting to die and still showing up to life and people being like, oh, you look great. Like you're killing it. Good job. You know, and just the, the inability to have my outside world match my inside world is something that I have suffered from my entire life. And that's not true in recovery, but we're not in recovery right now. We're in Bill's progressive decline into the illness, you know, and that, that was my story. You know, um, he talked about, uh, I, I love that he was a, a, a analyst, you know, a stock analyst and worked in finance. I worked in finance. I did. I worked in finance for a while. Um, 26 years old. I had a total nervous breakdown. I was passing out at the office. I was because I was binging and purging. And like, um, actually, I remember one time I worked for a hedge fund and my the bosses had to like have a talking to me because they would pay for our lunches. And I would order like three lunches from three different places. Like, I mean, I just like I couldn't, I I I um I was so crazy, you know, I was so I was so sick, you know, not just sick, sick with this disease, incapable of functioning without food, because food was my higher power. And I heard that, you know, in this part of Bill's story in terms of alcohol, like alcohol being the solution, right? Everyone else wanted to die. And Bill was like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to alcohol and it's going to give me courage. It's going to give me resolve. And for me, like that was, that was food. That was sugar. That was binging. That was purging. That was starving. That was running six miles. Like I had the solution, you know, I had the solution. I had a solution. 
it took all my pain away. And it made me, you know, it made me contemptuous of other people of like normies that didn't have access to this food stuff and access to, um, binging and purging. Like I didn't understand why people couldn't function with their feelings. Like I was like, I don't like feelings like what? Like, I just, I have a solution to all of that. I have a way to numb out, you know? And and I always, I thought my behaviors were the problem. Like I actually felt like I was superior to everybody else. If I could just stop the bulimia, if I could just stop the starvation, if I could just stop the, the binging. Um, and I think as a multidisciplinary uh, eating disordered person, I would sometimes think that the solution lied in switching addictions. Like, oh, if I just stop purging, but I binge, it'll be okay. If I just stop binging and purging, but I starve, it'll be okay. If I just switch to exercise instead of throwing up or laxatives, like it'll be okay. I mean, I just, um, my solution to the problem of my own suicidality, which, you know, I heard a little bit in Bill's story was to just turn to the thing that gave me that fierce determination to win, which was my eating disorder in all of its various forms, you know? Um, And then he talks about you know, like just the superiority complex, right? Like I had that and I don't know why looking back, it's like, why, like, why did I feel superior to other people when I was incapable of functioning without killing myself? Like, I don't, I don't know where that comes from, but I know that other addicts share that. And so today I don't have to have shame around it, but it really makes me relate to Bill. Um, you know, and this passive language, like drinking caught up with me, like food caught up with me. Like we talk a lot, like food has agency sometimes in a way like, oh, you know, like the food got me again. It's like, no, no, no. The mind, like the crazy mind, the thinking that food is going to solve it, the untreated, you know, addiction, that's what gets you, you know, like drinking didn't catch up with Bill. Bill couldn't stop drinking. And that's what caught up with Bill, you know? Um, and the, you know, the, the friends, like the friendships were just the devastation. I mean, I remember um, I, one of my friends, uh, this is a story I haven't thought about in a long time, but in high school, one of my friends invited me on an all expenses trip paid to Amsterdam. Like her family was going to pay for us to go to Amsterdam. Super fun, super exciting. I couldn't go. I decided not to go um, because I didn't know that I was going to be able to have access to binging and purging. Like I was like, I can't actually go with you to Europe because um, I don't know, you know, I don't know that I'll be able to get my food fixed. And similarly, this same friend years later got married and I couldn't, I didn't go to her wedding because her wedding was on a different coast and I would have had to be with people for three days. And I couldn't, I couldn't go three hours, let alone three days without bulimia. And um, you know, and so just like, the hurt that I perpetrated on friends, on people who loved me. And, you know, I heard, I hear that in Bill's story um, and just this progressive nature of the disease, right? Like finding a job then losing it because of a brawl with a taxi driver. I never had a brawl with a taxi driver, but I have certainly lost jobs as a result of my eating disorder, you know, binging and purging and being unable to come into work, going in and out of treatment, being an unstable employee, stealing money to support my habit, my food habits. I mean, I've, I've really been a very crappy employee. And this last time around, I was working for myself um, when I got recovered and I was a crappy employee for myself. Like I couldn't even keep my own business afloat. Like I just, you know, um, this this idea that I, I couldn't function in life. And I am so glad, you know, I hear people talking about being functional addicts. 
that has never been the case with me. Like I've either been in the disease or out of it. There is no, you know, there, for me, there is no ability to manage life successfully at all, at all when I am in this. Um, you know, when he talks about hardly drawing a sober breath, I, I relate so deeply to that when I am in my pattern of addiction, I, it's an all day affair for me. You know, I mean, I start up with, whether it be gum or candies or whatever, like I have something in my mouth all hours of the day, all moments of the day, then I'm binging, then I'm purging, then I'm starving, then I'm running, then I'm like, it's, it's all encompassing. It's every single moment of the day. And when it's not being enacted in my behaviors, it's being enacted in my thoughts. I'm thinking about, I'm planning, I'm strategizing, I'm jonesing, I'm controlling my circumstances and situations so that I can get my fix, you know? Um, and so, yeah, like I am, I am Bill and again with Lois, right? Like, oh my God, she, like, what this woman, like, I don't, I don't have Al-Anon issues. So I don't totally understand loving someone who is killing themselves and like sticking by them. But just, I, I think about my mother, my poor mother who like loved me despite Despite the fact that I would binge and purge in her house, that I would steal money from her, that I would, you know, go to a treatment center. One year I called her on her birthday and I was like, mom, if you don't come and take me into treatment, I'm going to kill myself. You know, like just stuff like that. Like I would just pain, just perpetrating pain upon pain upon pain on the people who love me and care about me and could see that inner light. Like they saw God in me. Right. But I couldn't, I couldn't. All I saw was the disease. All I saw was that pull of addiction. And all I was, was the disease, um, you know, but, but somehow, like somehow um, the people's ability to love my unlovable self kept me alive. And I know later on in the book or earlier on, Bill says that about love, like that the love of the people around him sort of like kept him alive. Um, and then, oh, this sentence, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. That is, I, one of my dear friends um, who he died actually of a heroin overdose. But one thing that he said to me was that, you know, with addiction, the cycle of addiction is that what's fun in the beginning becomes habit and what's habit becomes necessity. And the addict's problem is that we keep trying to get from necessity back to fun again. And that it explains my entire disease cycle, right? That like, it was super fun in the beginning to binge and purge and starve and overexercise and eat myself into a food coma while watching TV. Like that was, that was super fun. I don't know why it was fun. I'm wired in a weird way. It was just super fun for me. Um, it stopped being fun. It stopped being a luxury. It stopped being something that I could sort of take or leave or do because of some emotional disturbance. And it became the thing that I had to do in order to live. I had to do it in order to survive. It was, it was my daily reprieve from the insanity that happens in my mind. You know, bulimia was, was my solution. Um, you know, and he's talking about the routine of it. Right. And for me, like one of the great travesties of addiction isn't the symptom of addiction. It's when the addiction stops working, you know, and for, and that was, that's what I hear in Bill's story is like, you know, he just, he was trapped in this routine and it wasn't working, but he kept trying the same routine. And that was, that was my story. That is my story, you know, um, and all these consequences, right. All these consequences and it never working, but still thinking like, I'm going to control this. I'm going to get it. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to manage it. And for me, you know, I'm a person who has had 
numerous relapses. I've, I've been recovered. This is my fourth time being recovered. Um, and, you know, for, for some reason, right, like those periods of sobriety, I always thought like, I got this, you know, I got this cool. Like I'm in control. Haven't, haven't binged and purged in two years, two years, five years. Haven't, you know, thought about sugar, like all of that. And, and just not realizing that the true problem, the root of the addiction is my mind. It's my self-centeredness. It's, you know, um, the whole thing about like, just taking people hostage, you know, when I hear all of that in Bill's story and this gradual, the things just getting worse, right? The house being taken over by the mortgage holder. I've gone bankrupt as a result of this disease. Can I relate to my house being taken over? Absolutely. Like, yes, Bill's story is my story. Um, you know, and all these other things happening, like Bill doesn't talk about this, but the mother-in-law dying, the wife and father-in-law becoming ill, all these things like I don't know about all of you, but when I was in my active addiction, things would happen. And I was just like, oh, how inconvenient to me. Like, you know, like, how inconvenient. You mean I got to show up at my grandfather's funeral and I can't binge and purge that day? Like what? You know, just everything, everything, everything tied into me. Um, and always thinking, always thinking the solution lay outside of myself, right? Bill talks about getting this promising opportunity. Like, I cannot tell you how many things in my life have happened. And I thought, this is going to be the solution. I've got the boyfriend. I've got the girlfriend. I got the job. I got, you know, whatever it is. And thinking like, yep, I'm going to be okay now. I am going to be okay. And then I think outsiders who don't have this addiction would say that it's self-sabotaging, right? To like pick up and, and go back into the disease. I don't actually believe that it's self-sabotaging. I believe that there is you know, I believe deeply in the spiritual axiom that like all of my problems are a result of my own interpretations of what's happening, right? They, they, they have to do with me and my spiritual condition. But I always think that the solution lies outside of myself, that like, it's the job, it's the food, it's the this, it's the that, right? And so when Bill talks about getting this external thing, um, you know, some of the worst relapses in my life, in fact, my last really major relapse, I was in a relapse for a year and a half, my life from the outside before I picked up looked amazing. My body was the best it's ever been. I'd had five years of continuous abstinence. My job was going like really, really well. Everything was good. And I remember a friend of mine, his daughter committed suicide and he, and you know, I supported him through that. And I remember feeling like, and I was not in the food yet and everything in my life was good externally. I remember feeling like, I wish I had the courage to do what she did. I wish I had the courage to kill myself because I was so dead inside and everything around me was okay. And I, I didn't know why I was, I was so broken and I was so damaged because everything around me was okay. And I'd always thought that the solution lay outside of myself. And that's what I relate to in Bill's, in this part of Bill's story, right? It's like, he gets this external circumstance the whole time he's been lamenting like, oh, I don't have a job, my wife, my this, my that, you know, everything sucks and this is why. And if I could just, and my life could just get better, then maybe I wouldn't drink, right? And then life gets better and it's like, oh my God, but I st I'm still me and I still hate myself and I still hate my life. And the only solution I still have is food or, you know, and, and like, and so, so the deepest pain I think of being an addict is not when everything's not going well, it's when everything's going well. And I still hate who I am inside and I still have no God. Um, 
you know, and so then he goes on a, a bender and the chance vanishes. And, and this idea that like, you know, he, he realizes, finally realizes like, okay, I need to be done. I need to be done. I don't, I, you know, I cannot, I cannot do this. I can't do it in any quantity. I am, you know, I'm allergic to alcohol. I cannot do it, right? Like I got that. I got that years ago that there were certain foods that I could not put into my body that once I purged, I I didn't know if or when I would be able to stop, right? Like I got that on a bone deep level and I made promises. I, I made promises. I believed in that. If you hooked me up to a lie detector test, I would have told you like, 1000% I cannot have it and I never will again. And I I actually remember saying to someone when I'd had five years of abstinence, oh, I'll never binge and purge again. Like, watch out. Like, what a level of arrogance, right? And within a couple of months, I was binging and purging and I could not stop, you know? And so that just this idea that meaning business is somehow what I need, right? That like being, being willing to admit the problem of the allergy of the body, like that's, that's just part of step one. That's just a little bit. That's just the acknowledgement that like, yeah, okay. I, I can't, I can't get in that, that ring with that gorilla or whatever. Right. And like, think that I'm going to emerge unscathed. I can't dance with the foods that, that will kill me, that will take me over. Like I, I can know that intellectually and still not really understand that if I don't find something else to fill that God-sized hole that is not self-destructive, that is not something I can be addicted to, like if I don't find a power greater than me that is in keeping with my own values, um, I like it doesn't matter. It it doesn't matter because I I will end up back in the food again. And if I'm not back in the food, I'll end up miserable and in pain. And I would actually today, I can't believe I'm going to say this at an OA meeting, but I would actually rather be in the food than abstinent and spiritually and emotionally bankrupt. You know, and I've suffered a lot as a result of being in the food, but I have never been as desperately suicidal, emotionally bankrupt or hurtful to other people as when I have been abstinent and untreated as a compulsive eater, anorexic, and bulimic. Um, And, you know, Bill says, shortly afterwards, he came home drunk. There'd been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. And for me, after every long stretch of recovery, like I'm talking one year, two years, two years, five years, long stretches of recovery where I've picked up, I've been baffled. Like I had no idea how I ended up back in the food again. I could not have told you I felt hijacked by the disease. Like I didn't, I didn't know, you know, like my mind just overtook me and I was back in it. And I didn't, I didn't understand. I didn't know, you know, and, and was I crazy? Like the answer is yes. I have a mental illness. I have a spiritual sickness. Like, yes, I am. I'm crazy. But it's the, I I really believe it's like a beautiful kind of crazy because there's a solution that allows me to live in a way that is unprecedented for someone like me, right? A way where I can look myself in the mirror and love what I see. And I don't mean like love my body. I mean, like look into my own soul and, and feel like, wow, like you're the person that you were designed to be today. You know, like that, that's an amazing feeling. It's an amazing feeling. Um, 
And thank God that my resolve doesn't work. You know, Bill talks about renewing his resolve, which is so silly, right? Like that it hasn't worked. It's never worked. It's never going to work. And yet he again tries the same thing, right? Like, um, you know, I'm grateful today that my resolve doesn't work. I'm grateful that I can't control my way out of this illness. I'm grateful um, that, you know, this cycle happened again and again and again, because without that, you know, like if I hadn't binged and purged a bazillion times, if I hadn't been institutionalized 16 times, if I hadn't relapsed as many times as I did, you know, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't be as hungry for a spiritual solution as I am, you know, and today I know that there is no solution outside of myself other than a higher power that's going to fill that inner void, you know, um, that's going to make me feel the way that actually food made me feel, but food made me feel it for about five seconds, followed by infinite misery. Um, and the God of my understanding makes me feel it, um, you know, each and every day, most of the day, most of the time. And when I feel out of alignment with that, you know, I can do a 10 step and sort of get back on the beam again. So anyways, that's what came up for me in these pages of Bill's story. Really grateful to be able to share on them. And um, I'll pass and uh, eager to hear what other people have to say. Thank 